If you would turn in your Bibles, you can see up there on the screen to 1 Thessalonians. We've been in the study of the covenants of the Bible for a couple of months, and I've been praying about what to teach, and this is the direction that I felt the Lord leading me in the study of one of my favorite books, and I like all of them, uh, but uh, one of my favorites to study and to talk about is the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so I want us to think about that tonight. Got the board up here, and Katarina will try to put, put it up there so you can see uh, from time to time if I write anything up here. Uh, but I want us to think about the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to explain why it's such an important book for us to be studying and to learn. And we're going to take this verse by verse, as I do with any study of the uh, book of the Bible, and uh, look at the key elements of each of these passages and the themes and the subjects and all uh, of this passage and of this book. And so 1 Thessalonians tonight, if you would look there, and we're going to read in the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Sylvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in the word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, and from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. A lot of great information in just this little book. There's, in this book, there is five chapters, and we're going to look at these five chapters tonight. There's five, or not all of them tonight, but there's five chapters. There's 89 verses. So it's not a large book of the Bible, just five chapters, 89 verses, and 1,857 words. And of course, as you hear me say all the time, if you have any other translation, that number is going to be a lot less than that. But just five little chapters in this writing to 1 Thessalonians. And the name, by the way, Thessalonians means hot springs. Hot springs. I've been to places like Hot, hot Springs, Arkansas before. But it has significant meaning, hot springs. And it's written by Paul, obviously. Paul's the author. And it's written about 52 A.D. Being 52 A.D., that's about 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. So it's an early writing. It's not too long after the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, but these five chapters and these 89 verses have great, a great wealth of material theologically and spiritually for us that are saved. Uh, for example, when, when a new Christian, 
wants to study the Bible, often people will recommend a book of the Bible, and it's almost always a book like the Gospel of John. Somebody will say, well, you ought to read the Gospel of John uh, if you're a new Christian. But the Gospel of John was written. In fact, John explains that. He says, these things are written that you might. Really, Christians have been saved for a long time, but the purpose of the Gospel of John was written that you might believe. Well, for a new Christian, they've already believed, so there's really not a great reason to put them on the Gospel of John. Nothing wrong with that, but I believe that a greater choice would be the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, to me, would be the first book I would encourage, and I do that all the time when someone asks, would be the first book that I would give a new convert, a new Christian, to read because of the content of these five chapters. 1 Thessalonians has an advantage and that it begins with what I call the Christian experience. Everything is there in the Christian experience. And if you read 1 Thessalonians in just this one chapter, these 10 verses here tonight, in these 10 verses we read what the new convert has just went through and now what he's supposed to do. For example, I'll give you this real quick tonight, but if you look in verse number 5 again, he says this, the gospel came to them. Then in verse 6, they received the Word of God. Then in verse 7, they became in samples, or we say an example, but the same meaning there, became examples. In verse 8 and 9, they begin to witness. And then in verse number 10, they are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. In one chapter, in just 10 verses, we have the Christian life in a nutshell. The gospel came to them. That's we heard, heard the gospel, we heard a gospel, somebody gave us a gospel tract, somebody explained the plan of salvation to us. Whatever it was, we are in a worship service, the gospel came to us, then they received the word of God. That's the conversion. They heard the gospel, now they received it. It's not enough to hear it, you've got to act on the word of God. Now that they're saved, they're already being an example of what a believer is all about. And after all, that's what the word Christian means, is to be like Christ. So now they're setting an example. And verse number 8 and 9, they begin to witness themselves. I mean, they're already witnessing, and they had just been converted themselves. Do you realize tonight, you don't have to go through weeks of faith training. You don't have to go through all kinds of courses and all kinds of programs in order to share your faith. You can learn to share your faith in just a couple of moments, a couple of minutes. And the New Testament church, that's what happened. One person was led to the Lord who went after somebody else and led them to the Lord and witnessed to them. And whether it was a brother or a co-worker or a family member or, or, or a perfect stranger, so they heard the gospel, they received the gospel, they became an example, they began to witness, but here's the big one, they began to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. You know, you couldn't root a Christian in any better truth than that. There's nothing better you could root a new Christian in than all of those things. Once you're saved, now be an example of Jesus Christ. Now that you're an example of Jesus Christ, start telling others how they can be saved. Start witnessing and sharing your faith with others. Now that you're an example and, and now you're witnessing, start looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. He could come back at any given moment. That's what this is all about. That's what this book is all about. This is a church, as we'll see in just a moment, that Paul's writing to, and he's telling them as a new church, as a, as a body of believers, what they're to do as a church, and this is exactly what they're to do. They're to wait for the return of Jesus Christ and live their life in such a way that he might come at any given moment. 
We know Paul, as we said, wrote this book. And Paul says uh, uh, in his writing, in verse number one, he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Christian's position tonight is in God and in Christ. We see that in Colossians chapter number two and verse number nine. Verse number 10, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Here's another verse, by the way, that's a great proof of our eternal security. We are complete in him. We're in Jesus Christ. We're in God the Father. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. That's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says, now that we're saved, you're in him. You're complete in him. That's what Paul's saying here to the church at Thessalonica. He's telling them you're complete in him. We see that also in John 17, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You realize tonight that we're in God and we're in Jesus Christ? Isn't that a strange thought? We're here at Mountain Springs Baptist Church, and yet we're in God. And we're in Jesus Christ. And if you're watching from home, you're wherever you are, you're still in God and in Christ. That's our position. We're in the world, but we're no longer, uh, we're, we're, we're no longer of it. We've been saved from it. We have to walk here in it, but our position is in Christ and in God. And he says, under the church of the Thessalonians. Now, we have a problem here in him writing that, and that during this time, all the saved people in a community, like here at Thessalonica, they all met together and worshiped together. People get off on this idea of, you know, whether they have a building or not. It doesn't matter if they had a building or not. The point is, Christians of like faith met together as often as possible uh, together in one unit. They didn't just meet over here and over here and over here. They met together. They came together. We see it all through the New Testament, that they came together as we talked about the Lord's Supper Sunday night. You see there that they came together. They tarried one for another. They, uh, so you didn't have 50 different churches in one town. You didn't have 50 di different denominations, or even nowadays we have the same denomination and we'll have 50 churches in a five-mile radius in the Bible Belt. You didn't have that there. They're all, when he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, it's to a group of believers in Thessalonians. It's all of those that were part of the body of Christ at Thessalonica. Now, there's a difference in the, the church and the body of Christ. Uh, I want to show you a couple of those differences tonight. There, there is a difference in what we call the local church. We're part of tonight. We're sitting in a local church. So you've got a local church like Mountain Springs, but then you have the body of Christ. And a lot of people try to, to say that they're one and the same, and they, they really can't prove that because they're, they're not the same, and yet parts of them are. For example, the, the, the local church is an organization, or we could say an institution. Okay, the body of Christ is not an institution, it's an organism. It's a living thing. Anybody could set up a local church. 
I, you could get mad at me tonight and say, I don't like Brother Ben anymore, and I don't want to be Baptist anymore, and I don't believe that, so I'm going to go and buy me a piece of property and, and build you uh, something on that property and call it any name you want to call it, and you could turn that into a local church, but that's just going to be an institution. Or as some have put it, it's an organization. The body of Christ is a living organism. God himself breathed life into the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a living organism. Not every church is a living church. Some churches are as dead as dead can be. Some churches are spiritless and lifeless, and they might be organized, but they're just an institution. Everything that has a steeple on it isn't the body of Christ. Everything that has uh, uh, you know, uh, hymns or whatever in the pew doesn't mean it's the body of Christ. It might be the most corrupt place on planet earth. They're not the same thing. Not everybody in the local church is saved. Everybody in the body of Christ has to be saved. You can't get in the body of Christ without being saved. You say, but I can get in the local church without being saved. People do it all the time. People join churches all the time, just as lost as they can be. I could take 30 minutes today telling you stories of people I've met, people I've witnessed to, people I've, I have seen that were lifelong members of a church, served in every position they could serve in, and all the while were just as lost as they could be. They were lost. They faked their Christianity. They faked their conversion. Later on in life, they admit, praise God for those that do, many of them don't. In fact, Billy Graham said that he said that he believed that over 50% of the average evangelical church is filled with lost, lost people. 50% are lost. Now, I know Billy Graham's not the Holy Spirit, so he don't know that to be a fact, and it's not true in every single local church, but it's true in a lot of them. In fact, I think that number is probably low. I think a lot of local churches are, are filled with people where church is nothing more than, a, it's like an extension of a country club. It's a club. It's a place to hang out with my buddies. It's a place to, you know, uh, I pay my dues. I get my membership card and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll come and tithe a little bit. I'll serve a little bit. It's just like going to some club somewhere. And uh, it's like a little country club, but the Spirit of God ain't there. But in order to be in the body of Christ, you're saved. You can't be in the body of Christ without being saved. Do you know the, the way you get into a local church, at least a Baptist church or evangelical church, is by baptism? I mean, here at Mountain Springs, if somebody said, I want to join the church, and they haven't been scripturally baptized, that's the first thing I'd tell them. First, I'd make sure they're saved. After salvation, I'd make sure they're scripturally baptized. But baptism may be a requirement for the local church, but you don't have to be baptized to be in the body of Christ. Um, for example... Those that, uh, let's say you got saved, you came down the altar and you've never been saved before and, and you asked Jesus to save you and boom, just like we talked about, it happens all the time. You, somebody dies suddenly. If you didn't have time to get baptized, do you think you'd go to hell? You don't go to hell. There's a lot of people that got saved that never got baptized that are in heaven tonight. I'm thankful the thief on the cross for example, Jesus didn't say when he turned to him and say, Remember me when thou comest into, my, into thy kingdom. Jesus didn't say to him. He said, Today 
uh, thou shalt be with me in paradise if you can get down from the cross and join a local church somewhere and get baptized and put some money in the offering plate. He didn't have a chance. His salvation was not based on baptism. His salvation was based on his faith in Jesus. And so you have to be baptized. I mean, I'm sure there's probably some churches not, uh, that's, not, that's probably not even a requirement anymore. But in most evangelical denominations, especially us as Baptists, you have to be baptized in order to be in the local church. But you don't have to be baptized to be in the body of Christ. They're not the same thing. The lists go on and on. So the problem we have is that when, when, when we read in the New Testament where Paul or someone else keeps saying the church, the church, the church, the church, we've got to keep in mind that he's talking about all the saved people that were assembling together in that local community, in that place. And so when you wrote to the assembly, wherever you're writing, for example, to Thessalonica, you're writing to the body of Christ. That didn't mean all the body of Christ is just in Thessalonica. It just means that that's the group of believers that were there. It's only been in, in modern history throughout the last 2,000 years where everybody's splitting and splintering and starting all kinds of new belief system. And I, I don't need to go to, uh, to, to fellowship together, and I don't need to, to congregate together, and I don't need to assemble together. In the early church, they did. And in fact, people say, well, you can't show me where you have to do it on Sunday. I can show you where they met daily. Daily. So, hey, Sunday and Wednesday ain't too bad compared to meeting every single day. Now, let, let, let's put it into a, a comparison tonight. Let's, for example, say that I was sitting down and I'm writing a letter and I wrote a letter, God gave me this letter to write, and I write this letter to the church of God in Christ in Monroe. Who gets the letter? I write this letter, just like Paul's writing it, to the church of God in Christ in Monroe. Who gets it? Well, I can imagine for a moment the church of God would probably lay claim to it because they're all over the place, and they'd say, hey, it's even in our name, Church of God. We're the Church of God, so he's writing to me. We're the Church of God, so it's, this letter's addressed to me. And then the Church of Christ would get upset about it and say, wait a second, he said the Church of God in Christ. We are the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ believes, by the way, that you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ in order to be saved. Not just baptism saving you, but you've got to be baptized in a Church of Christ to save you. And they'd say, hey, that letter's to me. To us, we are the Church of Christ. Maybe the Catholics would say, well, wait a second, the Church of God in Christ, we are the Holy Mother Church. We're the ones that was founded upon Peter. Peter was the rock. Peter was the first pope. And so all other religion, uh, uh, Christian denominations spring forth from us. So when he says to the church of God in Christ, he has to be speaking about the one true church that Peter founded. It's to us. We get the letter. Of course, if it's us Baptists, which Baptist? Primitive Baptist, independent Baptist, Southern Baptist. There's all kinds of Baptists, Northern Baptists, American Baptists. What Baptists? And even then, which Baptists in Monroe? we got all kinds of Baptist churches in Monroe. Who gets the letter? But the truth is, in the New Testament, all the saved were meeting together in one assembly, and it's just no longer the case. So when he says to the church of God in Christ Jesus in Thessalonica... He's talking to those believers that were gathered together, meeting together in Thessalonica, that had started that church, that were worshiping the Lord together, that doesn't exclude other believers out there in the world. He's just addressing it to that specific 
body of believers that were there and it happened to be a group of them that had assembled together and were regularly meeting together. The church was being established. They were established together and it's just no longer the case in the world that we live in tonight. Now again in verse number 2, we give thanks unto God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Now he says always and remember any time in the New Testament when you see a word like always, he wasn't thanking God 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes uh, an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's always in the sense of being steadfast and doing it. It's always in the sense of being consistent. It's always in the sense of not failing to do it, but consistently and regularly doing that. So he gives thanks to God for them constantly, meaning he didn't quit. And verse number three, remembering without ceasing. Notice what he remembers. Your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He says, I remember without ceasing. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean 24 hours a day. It just means that he didn't quit doing it. He remembers what? Two things primarily. First of all, your labor, uh, your work of faith, and your labor of love. Do you know everything we do tonight as believers should be centered around those two things? Everything we do should be a work of faith and a labor of love. Our Christian service, it doesn't matter what we're doing. If you're reading the Bible, it should be a work of faith and a labor of love. If you're spreading the gospel and giving out a gospel track, it should be a work of faith, it should be a labor of love. If you're attending church, if you're worshiping the Lord, you should do it because it's a work of faith. We're not saved by works, but our faith with works proves our faith. And so it's a work of faith and it's a labor of love. The motive should always be love for the Lord Jesus Christ in all the work and labor we do. Then he mentions patience of hope and for patience of hope, I want to show you a couple of passages here. Romans chapter 5, for example, in verse number 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And so he says patience of hope is connected in Romans 5 verse 1 through 5 and again here in 1 Thessalonians 1 to the return of Jesus Christ. Patience and the return of Jesus Christ are connected. I'll show you another example of that in James chapter number 5 in verse 7. Be patient therefore brethren unto what? the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. It isn't a matter of just being patience, or patient. It's a matter of being patient for the coming of the Lord. Now imagine these are early believers. They'd only been saved for a short time. I mean, they're only 20 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet he's saying, be patient. Because Jesus is coming again. Be patient. That means tonight the more and more we look for the blessed hope and return of Jesus Christ, the more patiently we wait for it. And look, God is patient. 
in his return and we should be patient in anticipating his return. How patient has his return been? Well, here we are 2,021 years later and he hasn't come back yet. Doesn't mean he's not coming. It just means he's more patient than we are. And we're to patiently wait for it. Do you ever feel impatient about the coming of the Lord? I mean, we heard Billy Crone Saturday and Sunday and all these messages about the last days and the end times. And I'm thinking, sometimes I think, what, what's the Lord waiting on? What's he waiting on? I mean, all this stuff going on in Afghanistan and there's fires out west and there's flooding uh, down in Louisiana and coming up through the United States there. I mean, it's natural disasters and it's all this stuff going on. And what, what's he waiting on? But he's more patient than we are. But even for us, we are to patiently wait for him. We are to remember without ceasing, Paul says, your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, election is one of those words that everybody that studies nowadays runs into. I mean, it's in all the new theological books. It's being churned out in seminaries all across the nation. Churches are being split over Calvinism and election issues and what, what about election and predestination and all of that. But I want to show you something tonight. Election is a biblical term. But how people have twisted it is where it's not biblical. Election is a Bible term. You can find it. It is there. But you always have to look at election in the context of how it's written, where it's written, why it's written, and in the other passages that deal with election. And when you do that, you begin to see a picture that election is not what others are teaching about it tonight. This Calvinistic election idea that God, because he has foreknowledge, which he does, knew who would be saved and who would be lost, which he does, but since God knows that, then he has predestined people to be saved and predestined people to be lost, and you have no choice in the matter. You're either born to be lost or born to be saved. In fact, they take it to such an extreme. They talk about the five uh, uh, points of Calvinism, the primary fundamentals of Cal Calvinism, the tulip theology, and one of it deals with the fact that you are so depraved, they believe, which I believe in the depravity. Man is depraved. But they believe man is so depraved that he's not even capable of calling on Jesus for salvation. So they believe you have no free will. And if you take free will out of salvation, then we are now just robots that God elected some to be saved and some to, to wind up in hell. We got no choice in the matter. And so really uh, there's nothing you can do about it because you cannot, as a human being, you're so lost, we're all so depraved, call upon Jesus to receive him and accept him as our Savior. And folks, it's just not taught in Scripture. Election, the best way I can explain it for you tonight is election always takes place in time it does not take place in eternity. The foreknowledge of God takes place in eternity. Election takes place in time. Election always takes place not before Genesis 1-1, but after Genesis 1-1. Uh, in verse number 5, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word all, uh, only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. So they were elected but then the gospel came into them and they wind up receiving the, the gospel. Election did not take place before they received the gospel. I'll give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 
1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. In that passage, again, we are reminded of the fact that we don't get saved until Jesus had to die. After he died, we obey the gospel by accepting his sacrifice on the cross. And now that we've accept, accepted his sacrifice on the cross, now we are part of the elect. Which actually the true elect is about Israel. But when we're talking about the church, the church, we are elected because of what Jesus did for us. And we accept what he's done for us. You know, a great example is that, of that is uh, every four years. And um, we have a presidential election. That word election is the same word as elect. Now, how is somebody elected? It takes the will of the people to elect the candidate. And unless the election's rigged, anybody amen? Otherwise, you've got to exercise your free will. The idea that whoever is going to be elected is going to be elected. Well, God knows who's going to be elected. Yes, he does. But that person is not going to be elected until you go and cast your ballot. So if everybody stayed home and nobody went and cast their ballot and exercised their freedom and their free will, that person would not be elected. But once you exercise that free will and choosing who you want to choose to be the president, now that person is going to be elected. That's how an election works. The same thing is true with salvation. Yes, God's already died for us. Yes, uh, we, we know, or, or God knows who's going to be saved and lost, but he's given us a free choice. That's why the Bible says, whosoever will, there's your will, let him come and take the water of life freely. Whosoever will, if any man come unto me, I'll no wise cast out. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, any man, we see it all through the New Testament. We see it at the last chapter of Revelation, Revelation 22, where the Bible says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. You have a choice in it. And so people are trying to convince you you don't, but you do. And the idea, listen, God can't ever be unjust. The Bible says, shall not the Lord of the whole earth do right? The answer is yes. He will always do right. The God of the whole earth will always do right. He can't do anything but right. And if God for uh, just predetermined some people to, to, to hell without any choice of the matter, God's not being right or fair. Nobody can stand before God one day at the judgment and say, well, God, I wanted to get saved, but you wouldn't let me. And God says, well, I just allowed you to be born because I wanted to see you roast in hell for all eternity. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, here's what God says about it. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says, as I live, saith the Lord, I take not pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he turn. He wants him to turn from his wicked way. That's the God of the Bible. It's a God of mercy. It's a God of choice. How many times do we see even Jesus, over and over again, would go up to someone and say, What would thou that I do unto thee? They'd say, That I might receive my sight. Did Jesus know he'd heal him? Of course he did. 
Did he know that they would be born blind? Of course he knew that. Did he want to heal them? Yes, he wanted to heal them. But he had them answer the question, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to have your eyesight restored? Do you want to walk again? Do you want to believe? When he saw their faith, that's the freedom of will. We won't get into that any deeper tonight, but that's what the Bible teaches us. So that did not take place before Genesis 1-1. It took place at Calvary. Your obedience took place when you obeyed the Lord. You trusted the gospel. You trusted that shed blood on Calvary. It takes place in time. It doesn't take place in eternity. The foreknowledge of God takes place in eternity. Uh, in Romans chapter number 9, look here in verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. We see it all through the Old Testament. The same thing is repeated over and over again. It takes place in time. It takes place, election takes place when people are born, when people are existing, when people are hearing the gospel, when people are making the decision to receive or reject the gospel. And I'll just flat out say it tonight, eternal election, as the Calvinists are teaching, is a heresy. It is outright heresy. And it is absolutely killing churches all across America. And it's invaded even our seminaries. That's why up in Kentucky and places like that, the seminaries are churning them out that are Calvinist. And uh, you can believe anything you want to believe. It's a free country, but don't force it on everybody. And, uh, and you see them forced, and you see them going into churches. Here's a big thing going on with pastors now. They won't, I, I worry about a pastor. They don't want to be honest. And they'll ask a pastor, a potential candidate, they say, are you Calvinist? No, I'm not Calvinist. Get to the church, and then, you know, a year later, a couple years later, turns out they are Calvinist. Well, if you're so right, what are you being dishonest about it for? And so they get in there, and then they start spreading their doctrine, and they wind up splitting churches over false teaching and false doctrine. Sometime we'll get into more of that when we get into Romans chapter 8 or a passage like that. But let's go back to 1 Thessalonians tonight in chapter number 1 and verse number 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. Uh, he talks about the gospel. We don't have any question, hopefully, tonight about that. But he said it came unto you not only in word only, but in power of the Holy Ghost. He's writing to a New Testament church. Here's something we need to be reminded about tonight. There's a, there is a such thing as the power of the Holy Ghost. He's real. We ought to be preaching about the Holy Spirit. We ought to be praying for the feeling of the Holy Spirit. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I can even hear preaching when it's under the power of the Holy Spirit or teaching under the Holy Spirit, and, and I can tell when it's not. You can't fake it. Some try, but you can't. I've gone in churches, and, and you have a preacher's... Now, the word here knowing, some have interpreted it this way, but others have thought that it should be this way. We don't know exactly what the true meaning of Paul was here when he wrote, much has been lost in the 2,000 years since then, but the Greek rendering of the word knowing should also be noted because it could mean that they knew or it could mean that they did not know. It is important for us. What in the world is that? What in the world is that? It's all over the place. That's not preaching in the Holy Spirit. That's not teaching in the Holy Spirit. There's no Spirit of God in any of that. 
It's just trying to prove to you, I, I, I know a lot. I got a lot of education. I'm a robot. I want you to be robots. Paul said over and over again that there's power in the Holy Ghost. And he said the gospel should come in the power of the Holy Ghost. And he says in much assurance. Do you know that assurance of salvation is a biblical New Testament truth? People will say, well, you can't know for sure if you're saved. The Bible says you can know for sure you're saved. And in fact, if you don't know, you're not biblical. You can know. We ought to have assurance. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say anything like doubt or questionable or, or, or guessing or guesswork. It's all assurance of our salvation. He said, you watched us. You knew us. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He said, you saw us. And then he says in verse 6, and became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. He says, you watched us, you knew you were saved, but then you became a follower of us. Sometimes Paul will say, be a follower of me as I am also a follower of Christ. There's nothing wrong with following someone as long as they're following Jesus Christ, as long as they're following the word of God. You know, people say, well, you shouldn't follow a man. Well, actually, there's nothing wrong with following a man if that man or that woman is following the scripture, but it's when they're not following the scripture, not following Jesus' example, you need to quit following them. And it's never a compromise to follow someone. Well, let me put it like Bob Jones put it this way years ago. He says, you can follow anybody along the right road. It is never a compromise to go along the right road as far as you can with anybody. It is always a compromise to go along the wrong road any distance with anybody. Does that make sense? It's never a compromise. For example, if I had a... Somebody that, I, that was obviously a homosexual came up to me and said, I want you to sign a petition to ban abortion in North Carolina. Would you sign it? You know what I'd do? I'd sign it. You say, but Brother Ben, what about? No, that's not a compromise. Because what they're doing is going down the right road with that issue. But let's say I got asked to speak at another church. Let's say at Christmas time, somebody asked me and said, Brother Ben, would you come speak at our church? And I said, sure, I'll be glad to speak at your church. And they said, well, it's Christmas, but whatever you do, don't mention the virgin birth because we don't believe in the virgin birth here. Would you still come and speak, but do not say anything about the virgin birth? If I went, I would be compromising. Let me repeat what Bob Jones Sr. said. You can follow anybody along the right road. It is never a compromise to go along the right road as far as you can with anybody. It is always a compromise to go along the wrong road any distance with anybody. He says we are to be followers of them. Notice he goes on also to say that they received the word of God in much affliction. This idea that when you get saved that everything's going to go your way is just not biblical. You're going to have hardships. You're going to have hard times. You're going to suffer affliction as a Christian. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So what's being preached out there, this prosperity gospel that if you get saved, it's just everything's going to go your way. Where is it? Chapter and verse. Because here's just the first chapter, and it's going to get better than this. But he says in the first chapter, after they got saved, he says, you suffered affliction. But notice, he says, with joy of the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine affliction and joy being two words in the same sentence? And yet, 
as Christians, we know all about what it means to be afflicted and experience the joy of the Holy Ghost in affliction. In fact, do you know that Jesus said when they persecute you as they persecuted me, he says you're to leap, you're to jump up and down and clap your hands and shout for joy. He said, for so did they, the prophets before you. He said, when you, I mean, when's the last time you got persecuted? Which we don't really know persecution in America. We get made fun of. We might get mocked. Somebody might call us a holy roller, a Bible thumper, a holy Joe or something. But we don't really know persecution. Not really. But can you imagine, you, get, you go through affliction and you jump up and down and say, praise God, nothing went right today. Glory to God. The car didn't start and the toilet won't flush and the... The sink backed up and, and my back's not feeling good tonight and I stubbed my toe and the tooth's aching and praise God the bills came in. But that's the model we have before us. There's joy even in affliction. Look in verse number 7. Let's hurry on. He says, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Sample, in sample, it's an old English word. I don't think we need a whole other translation just for this word. I don't think we have trouble understanding it. It simply means a sample. We say example, but an example or an ensample, it means a sample of something. You ever gone to Costco or Sam's Club and they have, I don't, I don't guess they really do it much anymore, but it used to be you'd go around lunchtime and they give out samples of food. It's a sample. It's giving you a taste of what it's like. That's what this word means. He says, you're to be like the followers of Jesus Christ. You are to set an example so that others would see and follow that example. You know, this is an area where we're lacking in modern day Christianity. Christ, uh, Christians today want Jesus. They want heaven. They don't want hell. They want to be forgiven, but they don't want to set an example of right living and of Christian living and of sanctification and of separation and of a life that brings glory to God. It's too easy just to blend in. But we're not called to be uh, chameleon believers and camouflage Christians. We're called to set an example. And the example is of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we don't know somebody's heart. Only God knows their heart. But at the same time, there was a time in America where you could look at someone and say, that's a Christian, that's a lost person. You could look at them and now you can't tell the two apart. You can't tell them apart. But there's a time when you could. You say, but God looketh on the, the heart. I get all of that, but God also called us to possess our vessel in sanctification. God also says, be ye holy as I am holy. God also said, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Separate. The Bible also says, uh, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You can't love God and love the world simultaneously. You've got to let one go. And that's not what the early church was about. They were examples to others. And so they were example, and he says in every place, he said uh, uh, from uh, verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Well, not, when again, like he says, every or every place. It's not every place. It was, they, they didn't sound out in Mexico and Antarctica. and I, It's not every place. So sometimes when the Bible says all or whole or every, sometimes it's not referring to all without exception. It's sometimes referring to all without extinction. That's how Paul is writing it here. It's the same way like I've been at church all day today. And if I came home and, and I said, Luna, so how was your day? I was at church all day. And uh, she says, oh, I've, I've cleaned the house top to bottom all day today. Did she clean top to bottom? 
Did she get up in the attic and clean up there and get in the crawl space and clean down there? I hope she didn't. Did you turn over every can and every box and every cushion? No, it, it's just an expression. So I hope we understand that as we read the New Testament, some of these things are not meant to be contradictory. It's just look at the meaning behind what he's saying here. He's saying all in the sense that they were doing all that they could within their means. It doesn't mean all without uh, exception. Now, verse number 8 and 9, again, look in verse number 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, here in verse number 9 is a great example of conversion, a great example of repentance. Um, another word we don't hear much of anymore, but it's still a biblical word. And something we need to be reminded of. He says you turn to God from idols he said to serve the living and true God. That means there has to be a turning to and a turning from in order for us to be saved. Now, the idols were true idols. It wasn't just an expression. There were idol worshipers that were in that day. And you've heard it said, I'm sure, before many times. But, uh, but even in our day and age, you've got people that do worship idols. That still goes on all around the world. Uh, icons, images, whatever they've got. Uh, it, it goes on all around the world, even in America. Uh, but a lot of things, somebody put it this way, an idol is anything that you put before God. And so in America, you say, well, we don't have an idol of wood or an idol of stone or an idol of glass. Well, we've got televisions that's made out of a lot of that stuff. A lot of people bow down to the almighty television. We've got electronic devices. We've we got a lot of things that may not look just like an Old Testament image, but it's still an idol. Uh, but the point here is in order for us to be saved, in order for them to be saved, they had to turn to God. And they're turning to God from idols. This is something positive. This is something negative. This is something positive. And you have to have all in order to bring about conversion. All conversion can't be just positive. Again, we're living in a time where people are saying, do you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Oh, well, then you're saved. That, that's not salvation. How, uh, do you love your mom? Well, then you're saved. No. That's not salvation. There has to be a turning to and a turning from. And once you've turned to God from idols, there's going to be a change in your life. You're, you're, you're now serving God in a way that you weren't serving anything before. So the new convert turns to God, positive. He turns from idols, negative. And there's no way to turn to God without turning from idols. And that's why real belief includes repentance. Repentance includes belief they're connected and what's missing in modern christianity is repentance and we've got to understand we've got to repent of being a sinner and repent of our sins and understand jesus alone can save us from our sins in order to be converted uh sam jones boy i love to study sam jones from cartersville georgia back in the 1800s he was a a fireball preacher methodist preacher and i've uh, followed his ministry read his books I mean, he's got messages called uh, uh, Thunderbolts. I mean, the whole book of his sermons called Thunderbolts. He was a, a, a powerful man of God, a powerful preacher. But here's how he explained 
conversion this way. He says, you walk along this way, you stop, that's conviction. You turn around, that's repentance. You begin to walk the other way, that's conversion. So I'm walking this way and I'm lost. I get under conviction, so I stop. Conviction alone is not salvation. People get convicted about things all the time. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have done that. People get convicted. I shouldn't be with this person. I shouldn't be at that place. Conviction is not conversion. You're walking along this way, you stop. That's conviction. But then you turn. That's repentance. Repent or perish. Turn or burn. Now you've turned. You were going this way, now you've turned. That's repentance. Conversion is when you start going back this way. You see, you can't be converted just by conviction, and you can't be converted and keep going the way you were. That's why the Bible says old things are passed away, all things have become new. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. We got a new father. We got a new family. We got a new birth date. We got a new heritage. We, we got, uh, uh, I mean, we're adopted in the family of God. We've got a new citizenship in heaven. Things are new. You can't have the old and the new simultaneously. So when you stop, you're under conviction, but you're still not saved. You still would wind up in hell. It's not until you repent. And when you repent and turn to God from idols and start serving the true and living God, that's when conversion is going to take place. So simply put, repentance is a turning from and a turning to. I will add to this as well, though. I'm not in the least bit uh, trying to brush off the fact that if you've been sinning, doing something, let's say a, a sinful habit for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, that you're going to be able to give it up the second you get converted. That's not what I'm saying. A lot of people do and a lot of people can. But you might, you might have sins in your life that are still going to plague you and haunt you and you're going to have to fight and deal with for the rest of your life. And you can't quit fighting it. Some people, I've known people that, uh, my grandfather, my mom's father, his name was Ballard Raider, he gave up drinking cold turkey. He'd been drinking, he used to tell us when we were kids, he said, I can take you to the stump where the bottle is still in the stump, out in the woods, walking on a path to go see my grandmother. And he said he got her conviction. He put the bottle in the stump and he said, I never drank another sip, never turned back. Some people can do that. Some people are going to fight that their whole life. And so it's not a matter of just because you're forgiven of your sins that you're going to be able to give up everything instantaneously. And I think that's where we miss the mark too. We want people to always clean up their life and then get in the church. But you know what we need to do is we need to remind them that you come to Jesus, let him clean you up, and don't wait. Because if you wait to get cleaned up in your life before coming to Jesus, the devil will see to it you'll never get cleaned up. You'll never get cleaned up. All right, I want to show you another passage here in Romans. We're just about through for this chapter. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. Here's, here's repentance. It's found right here. It's all scriptural. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made of salvation. It's a heart and it's a mouth. With the heart you believe. With the mouth you make it public. 
You profess and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you possess him as your Lord and Savior. Um, and he says in verse number 9, again, showing to us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there's some marks of conversion in this chapter. For example, in verse number 5, they had much assurance. That's a mark of conversion. You should have assurance of your salvation. And verse number 6, you begin to, became followers of us. True converted people want to follow. They'll find a church. They'll find a mentor. They'll find someone to disciple them. They want to be a follower of Jesus and a follower of what's right. So they had much assurance. They became a follower of them. Verse number 7, they become an example of the believer. So immediately they're, they're exemplifying what it means to be saved. In verse number 9, they turn to God from idols to serve God. In verse number 10, look at verse number 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Those are some marks of conversion. I tell you what, if you've got those listed in your life and you can put a check mark next to all of them, it's a pretty good sign you're saved. If you have assurance of your salvation, if, if you are, are following what's right and trying to do what's right, if you're turning from the world and trying to live for God, if you're trying to be an example, and if you're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, it's, it's all pointing to the fact that you are saved. Some of many of what we call birthmarks of believers. And so he says this, and to wait for his son from heaven. That's not talking about death. The obvious context is the rapture of the church. How do I know that? Because Paul mentions the coming of the Lord in every one of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter number 4, when we get there, we find in verse 13 to the end of the chapter, one of the most familiar, well-known passages about the rapture of the church. And the emphasis is the coming of Jesus Christ. He ends verse number 10 telling these new believers there not only to wait for, for, for Jesus uh, from heaven, but he said... And has delivered us from the wrath to come. Now the wrath to come is important. Because the wrath to come is not hell. The wrath to come in Paul's writings is always a reference to the tribulation. You say, Brother Ben, can you prove that we're not going to go through the tribulation in one verse? Here's you one right before you tonight. Look in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not appointed to wrath. The tribulation of seven years is called the time of God's wrath. It's the time of great wrath. God's going to pour out his wrath, his indignation on the world for seven years. It's going to happen. And God says, I've saved you from the wrath to come. I don't have to fear the tribulation. Now, I'll be honest. We don't know how bad it's going to get before the tribulation. We don't know how bad it's going to get before the rapture. And it might get a whole lot worse than we think but when it's all said and done we have been saved from the wrath to come in Matthew chapter 24 we'll stop there tonight but in Matthew chapter 24 a lot of people try to use that as a proof text that we're going through the tribulation and all of that Matthew 24 I'll go ahead and tell you this much there's not a single Christian in Matthew 24 some of y'all are ready to gasp <gasps> No, there's not a single Christian 
The, we become Christians by believing the gospel. The gospel is what? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 24, Jesus had not died yet, he had not been buried yet, and he hadn't rose again yet. Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the church age, has nothing to do with Christians in the New Testament church, Gentiles in the New Testament church age. Jesus, as a Jewish Messiah, is speaking to his Jewish disciples, talking about events that's going to affect the world, but the center and the focus is on Jerusalem, the nation of, of, of the Jews, and he's speaking not to the Gentile church, he's speaking to the Jews, and yes, we can read it and we can apply a lot of it and say, well, hey, we know that if these things are happening, then the coming of the Lord and the rapture is even closer, but the context of all of that is Jews going through the tribulation. We're not going through the tribulation. We're saved from wrath, from the wrath to come. Do you know we're called the bride of Christ? And the bride of Christ, any of you men would let your bride get all beat up and just sit back and watch it happen? I mean, you wouldn't be much of a husband if you'd let somebody just come and just, just beat your wife up and mistreat her and abuse her and you just sit back and watch it happen. What kind of a husband would you be? You know what you're going to do for your bride? You're going to step in and you're going to stop it and you're going to fight for her. And the Bible says of the church that we're the bride of Christ and Jesus Christ is going to fight for his bride. That's why before he comes, he wants us to be without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. He wants to present us, the Bible says, as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. He's not going to let the church get all beat up during the tribulation. He's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. And that's why Paul told those early believers, no man knew the day or the hour that Jesus is coming back, not even Paul, but he knew it was imminent. And that's why he told them, he said, get ready, be looking, be the example, be followers, witness to others. But Jesus is coming. We get to chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to see that it's the theme of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but the theme is the coming of Jesus Christ. What better theme could we know tonight than Jesus could come back at any moment? We'll stop there and get into chapter 2 next week. Uh, as we uh, conclude our service tonight, um, I mentioned Aluna's family and prayer.